I think the really powerful thing that sticks out to me in all of that is you're evolving it based on actually using it. And I think a lot of people might not appreciate that, right? You you have all these people building libraries, but never actually really using them. And that means they don't really realize which impact their API decisions have. But you're really, you're using this for the Prisma data platform. You're using it every single day, even if you're not adding an object every day, right? You're certainly working on the API. And so you're very aware of all these fine trade-offs that you're making between the magic that you had in version one and now maybe a little bit less magic, but more flexibility and, and more extensibility in version two. And that's beautiful. Yeah, things get real when your products start scaling and more engineers start joining your team. Start getting new perspectives that kind of influence the origin of where you know you wrote certain code in. So really cool to see for sure. There's another Nexus library, right? There's like a Nexus result library. What's the deal with that one? So Nexus, yeah, I think it's called Nexus-result-field, if I remember correctly. And that came out of you know, work in the Prisma data platform, but more from our application layer. So it didn't start off as a library the way Nexus Prisma did. From right, It really kind of grew out of, oh, we've got this code in our application layer. And like, wouldn't it be nice if it was better tested and more modular? And like, we just shared it with the open source community. That's been, I think, out for maybe a month or two now. And it's not like the biggest thing ever, right? It, it, I think in terms of line of code, I mean, it's, a, I think, a few hundred lines of code. So, you know, it has a very modest scope, it has a very specific problem it's solving. And what, the, what it's about is making it easy to have fields, typically query or mutation fields, that are what we call result fields, which may not be a standard term. So you may, may hear this referred to it in different ways in, in different uh, conversations. But what we think of a result field as is when you're querying for something, you might pass in an ID and you might get that thing back. Um, but you might get what sort of equivalent to, a, say, a 404. And that might be a null in a lot of people's schemas, right? They might say, you can get this thing back, but it's it's nullable. That works in a lot of cases, of course, and it's fine. But where the result field kind of becomes handy is what happens when sort of the reason something is null can, can actually have a lot of semantic possibilities, right? The reason it's null is, well, yeah, it wasn't found. Oh, no, you actually, you don't have authorized, you're not authorized, or so on and so on, right? So null gets you, is, is definitely always a solution there. But if you want to be able to start communicating a bit more in your schema and coding a bit more semantics, the result field can be nice there. So what ends up happening is instead of a, a nullable, say, user, you get a union of, hey, you have the user or you have these other possible objects. And those possible other objects would typically be sort of the failure of, like failure cases, and they'd be typed uh, specifically with, with something that went wrong. The user is not necessarily the best example. I think like on the data platform, for example, we have a mutation that allows you to link a database to an environment and environments inside of a project. And when you link a database, there's a variety of things there that need to be done before we consider it valid, right? And those are things the client can opt into with the API. But just to give you an example, uh, linking a database can require that you check, hey, is this database reachable? Is this database empty? Um, would you like this database to be seeded and, and have a schema pushed? So there's a lot of like aspects there in that mutation. It's not just about, hey, take a connection string and just put it in the database. It's a very rich mutation that has a lot of business logic around it. And in that mutation, it may come out successful, but it may come out with a variety of failures. So we have sort of three, we think of failures in sort of three categories. There's, think there's the sort of, we call them client, client input errors, client business errors, and there's unknown errors. And so the three groups are the basis for some interfaces in our GraphQL schema. So they're sort of, they're not just apps, like they're not just in our minds, they're actually in the, the system. Here's how they're different. Client input errors are essentially, if, if you get back this error, uh, you, you have a query that will never succeed. 
Um, and so some cases you can encode this with anyways, custom scalers, right? So um, right now, like we're considering, for instance, adding a custom handler, uh, sorry, a custom uh, scaler for handles, which are sort of like basically names that have very specific rules, right? There's, they have to be sort of slugs basically. And so there's, and there's like, there's life limits and there's character constraints and, and various things. So we're thinking, okay, maybe it's worth putting, and this shows up in a lot of places in the schema, this sort of handle concept. We're thinking, okay, maybe we'll, we'll create a custom scaler for this. But it, it's a bit of a balance. Like, should you make go crazy with custom scalers and put them everywhere? I, I think, in, yeah, there's still like a lot of cases where they don't even fit. So an example would be like, we have a couple parts in the API where you, you can, um, and this might change once input unions are in, in GraphQL, but for the time being, you'll have say an input where you can then do sort of a nested mutation. You can connect or create some kind of nested resource, but you can't do both, right? So it's like either, you have to either connect or create. So it has to be, one, but they're mutually exclusive. So if you put both, that's also an error. And so that kind of check, right? Is hard. You can't really capture that with a custom scaler. It's really something you're just going to do in your resolver and you're going to say, nope, this is like, this is an invalid input. And so that would be a client input error category. And so anytime you get anyway an error of this category, basically you, it's kind of like in the same way that uh, if you get a type error from the Prisma, from the GraphQL API, if you get it specs a string and you put a number, any, anything like that, right? Like you, you have a query that will never succeed. And then there's just basically some sort of dynamic extensions, if you will, where there's some ways in which you can send a query, which will, will never succeed, not because of the sort of static type system, but because of sort of a dynamic check, right? Like I said, the connecting create. If you put both those fields, you'll never, ever, ever have a successful query. So that's, a, that's one category of error. And we put those into the schema. And that would be some examples of error types that might be in the union of the result. Then there's client business errors. And those are a bit more interesting because a lot of the client input errors, they, they'll be caught at test time, right? Like if we ship a front end that is hitting a client input error, that's kind of silly because that basically means there's a bug in the front end and the, the user is going to have a pretty bad time with that. So sometimes it's useful to understand like in the client, having the client input error in the schema can be useful to sort of understand hey, what's going to happen with like, what is the possibility space here of problems? So it's a good communication mechanism but it doesn't necessarily result in errors that the front end will ever really show to an end user using the front end, right? Because that's not actionable, right? Like the fact that the front end encodes sent a string instead of an end is not actionable by the end user. So it's not useful for sort of rep error reporting for the end user. But this other category of client business errors are actually a lot more interesting. That's kind of a bigger domain, possibly, depending on the API, of course, but it, takes, it can take up a lot more of the error space. So client business errors... We, we put things in there that fundamentally basically means the client tried to do something and maybe it's like trying to link resources. So for example, with the mutation, when you're creating a database link, right? If the database is not reachable, therefore we reject the, the attempt to take this connection string. We reject that attempt to put that into your environment as a linked database because we couldn't reach the database. So did you make a typo? You know, there's all sorts of things that could, could be a problem there. That's a, that's a client business error. And basically these kinds of errors, we say, Maybe there's like, there's some problem, right? So maybe the database is down. Maybe you just need to go and do some work uh, for five minutes and come back and try the query again. So the query itself may be actually like functioning and it, it may work in the future. The client business error has like many, many sort of specific subtypes, right? That would, for example, be database unreachable. And, and another one is like we integrate with GitHub. So there's various things that can go wrong when you're talking to GitHub and like, did the user, did they uninstall the Prisma app on GitHub from, or revoke access to the repository with the Prisma app, right? There's all sorts of weird things that can happen. And in those, again, the query might be okay, but at that point in time, there's some kind of error with the resources on maybe GitHub and they have to go do something. And so those are actually quite a bit more useful for the result type because we'll embed semantics and information in the schema about like a message 
right? Um, and a specific kind of error, let's say for like the database being unreachable, maybe there's an error we got back from the database that's more specific about what's unreachable about it, what kind of network error happened. And we can kind of put that into our schema, right? That will like encode as much sort of specificity about that kind of error. Um, and you can't, so all this is beyond what you could ever achieve with a null. And so, and then with those sort of specifics, then the front end can pull that down, like they can select those fields from the error types and they can potentially show that into like, you know, a little, some kind of modal or error message or, or whatever. Um, so those, those client business errors can potentially have value for, for end users of the app. The third category, unknown error, this is probably like the one where it's most legitimate to potentially just treat as the errors field in the JSON response of GraphQL, where it would just be a throw in the front end code. So if we have, like if AutoKit returns a 500 when we try to talk to GitHub or something, right? These potentially can be, these things that should never happen, right? It could happen that a repo is not found and that's a 404 or something. And that like might represent, you know, a client business error, but like we shouldn't get a 500. If we get a 500, something that sort of wasn't, within the normal functioning of the system happened. And so this unknown error is sort of a catch-all for those other cases. So in the end, we choose to put nothing into the sort of the JSON error payload because we figure, well, we've got already client input error and client business errors. It's not really a stretch at this point to put the unknown errors there also. It doesn't really increase the, the workload for the front end to narrow the types in TypeScript and so on because they're already going to have to narrow it in the first place for, say, when they get the result, is it a, is it a client business error or did I actually get the, the success Right. So the, having the unknown errors becomes, I think it's not like a motivator for this pattern in the first place, but once you're already there, so far we've just decided to, to put it there. But uh, yeah, so we've been doing this since the beginning. So for this whole year, we've been doing this pattern. And so far, we're happy with it. I think there is a bit of investment. Uh, and also, I think it might, you know, you might get different levels of value here if you have a public API versus us with sort of a, you know, we have a, our own, just one front end app consuming the API that we control. But overall, we've been happy with the pattern. It makes us think about errors in a much more like principled way. We model them. We think about what are the possible things that can go wrong in mutation. Uh, so we're not just writing code and be like, okay, it could throw. And, and the problem with throws, right, is that they don't show up in the type system of TypeScript. So like this, this way of thinking also, it, it infects also just programming languages in general. So some programming languages like Swift, right, they have optional types, Haskell and Scala. Like there's a lot of the programming languages that also take this approach of errors should be represented as data. But when you do that, and TypeScript is another beneficiary, if you treat errors as data in TypeScript, you know, you get that represented in the type system and you can be like, oh, I forgot to handle an error case. That's a lot harder with throw when you have like 50, you know, a call stack that's like 50 functions deep. And if you can throw errors in like six spots, some of the code you don't own, like it's, it's just way messier. So you end up with like kind of low confidence try catches everywhere. And you're like, well, there's something could go wrong. I'm not quite sure what it would be. And and just so I think the sort of the result field aspect from the API, but also if you go deeper into your own code base, I think it's a, it's a big confidence builder, but it is, it's a different style of coding. It does take, it does like change sometimes just throwing and, and like you have this beautiful, you know, everything looks like the code, like the happy paths. You don't have to have all these like branches and conditionals and say, is it an error if it, you know, so there's sort of some verbosity that goes along with this pattern, but for us, the type safety is, is a big part of our stack and testing strategy. Like we treat, we think of static types as part of our testing strategy. So we're, we're fine with that. That makes a ton of sense. So basically use Prisma to get type safety for database, use Nexus to get type safety for your graphical schema, and then use Nexus result field to get type safety for your errors as well and make sure that you're handling all the cases that could happen. Yeah, absolutely. 